Podcast One. everyone. Welcome to Listenable. Uh, we are across the world. Thank you so much for listening wherever you get. Uh, thank you so much for your reviews and your subscribes. And a big thank you to Apple and Spotify for including us in their top podcasts. I actually was like, well, I know we're doing a great podcast, but when I went on Apple Podcasts and I saw the editor's picks, like Apple's picks are the best podcast of the year. Pretty cool. Our podcast was on there. Not bad. I was like, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty And it's obviously be- not because of you, I reckon. You know, it's-, it's a guy in the wheelchair? I reckon, I mean, you sure. are the able-bodied guy involved in this, you know. Yeah, it was, one, it was my idea. You're, yeah, true. I've got to say, uh, I'm very excited about today's guests. Uh, Maybe yours. Yeah. He's, oh, yeah. Well, he's a, I'll tell you why I'm excited, because of the three of us, including him, right, there is Olympians and Paralympians, right? Yeah. And there's only one person who isn't an Olympian or Paralympian in this chat, and who is that? It's me. Oh, cool. Yeah. But there's also three people in the room who didn't win the US Open. True, I did lose the US Open final. You absolutely. Good point. Uh, <laughs> let's let our next guest introduce himself. Hi, guys. Uh, my name is Sam Willoughby. I am, or well, I was a professional BMX racer. I had an accident in 2016. Um, I broke my neck at C567 and... Yeah, I'm now considered a C6 quadriplegic. Sam, you got two big fans over here, brother. Yeah. We love what you do. The your outlook on life, post accident, all this stuff. We're going to get into that, you know, as we uh, as we chat. I was a big fan of the proactive commercials, personally. Yeah. <laughs> hey, very good reference. <laughs> we appreciate you joining us all the way over from from America. You're in San Diego, is that right? Yes. What the yep. What the f are you doing over there, bro? Come home. We don't have any COVID here. Hmm. I know. I know. I've um. Been here for about 10 years now, yeah. so could be worse. I'm, yeah, happily living here with my wife, Elise, and our little dog, Mila, and hmm. luckily, yeah, we're, we're in a bit of lockdown, but um, I'm very fortunate in that um, we have a good setup here at the house, and with my wife being involved in Olympic sport over here, the Olympic training, one of the Olympic training centers for paras <laughs> and Olympians is uh, here in Chula Vista, so I've um, got a lot of access to the medical staff there and obviously they're up to speed with work with a lot of athletes with similar injuries to mine and up to speed with things to look out for and um, that kind of thing. So um, I've been pretty lucky, but um, it, it, I'm sure it's very tough, especially for people that are alone at, and, and stuck, at their, stuck in their houses. Do you know who trains in San Diego uh, in that facility? Your favourite wheelchair tennis player. David Wagner, hey, Canada's yeah. finest. It's, it's, my, no, it's America's finest. America's yeah, finest, okay. He's my arch nemesis and Angus always cheers for him. I love That's David Wagner. That's how much of a jerk he is, Angus. Hey, yeah, yeah. Sammy, I mate, know David. You're, <laughs> mate, you're a lad. You're an Olympic silver medalist, world champion multiple times. Can you take us back to the start of your life? Like, where did you grow up um, and when did you start getting involved in BMX? Yeah, I grew up in Adelaide and was just, yeah, mad on footy, AFL, and then obviously bikes. So my brother and I were just, always riding bikes around the neighborhood and South Australia is very cycling friendly. Um, a lot of BMX tracks. There was a lot of just jumps around in random parks back then. And, and a huge cycling culture as well in Adelaide. It is. Yeah. Like home of tour down under yeah. and um, cycling Australia headquarters with the velodrome and, and that kind of thing. So we've always been around bikes and um, started off. It was just kind of our transportation and um, something that we love to do. And, 
mom and dad wouldn't get us a motorbike. So that was like <laughs> the next best thing kind of. And um, yeah, so all my earliest memories are on a bike or kicking a footy and was very fortunate to have a brother who was only two years old, 18 months older than me. And um, yeah, we were just best mates and did everything together. So a bike has been synonymous with your life and still is, and you got to reach the absolute pinnacle of it. So you're 29 years old. You uh, had your accident in 2016, so you've been disabled for four years. One thing I I find really interesting is um, a lot of people who become disabled or have an accident that leaves them with a disability, they might, obviously, your life is immediately going to change. What was that like for you when you realized that the sport that you've grown up in Adelaide, now taken to the world, uh, is never going to be the same for you? Or was in those first instances, did you think that you might one day be able to get back on the bike in the same way that you had for your whole life? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And, and it, it kind of went the, the other way for me. I was in, some, in many respects fortunate from the standpoint that I look back even now and I'm, I've, I feel I did more than I ever would have dreamt of as a kid mm, on a bike. And um, so there wasn't really anything left on the table. And, and my mind instantly went the other way in that I, I appreciated all the, there's just the basic things, you know, like being able to, you know, reach the high cupboard and, you know, not having to, to think, think twice when you go to the petrol station and you've got to make sure you're X amount of distance away from the curb so uh-huh. you can get your wheelchair in <laughs> well to fill your car up with petrol. And, you know, just all those little things that you'd never think of that people that with disabilities have to constantly think about and, and go through it on a daily basis. So for me, I, I realized that what I loved about BMX was the competition side of it. And for me, I was able to, fortunately I had a, I feel like I had a skill set that I gained from sport where I was able to kind of instantly switch gears and figure out ways to transition the, the passion and the things that I loved about sport to other avenues of life, whether it be coaching or um, I gained a huge passion for coffee and started using my attention to detail and, um, putting that into making coffee every day and then eventually into the coaching side of things. And so, yeah, I was able to kind of, I feel like transition those um, traits or those, the, the actual things. I, what I liked about BMX was deeper than just riding a bike. Whereas I feel like, you know, unfortunately, you know, I, I meet a lot of kids and stuff that get hurt at a really young age and, and that's tough. And, and I find it really hard to, you know, to even, my, my situation is different in that respect because, you know, I think of a 15 year old kid that's just starting out, um, you know, riding BMX, for example, and it's got the world in front of him. And, and then you have an accident and, and you haven't really figured out who you are maybe yet. And, and now you've got to make that, that sharp transition. So do you find that, and it's great that you have that mindset and I think that's amazing and hopefully you know, people can take something away from that, but do you find that because you got to reach those pinnacles of your sport in competition, that lessened the blow? There wasn't sort of things you needed to tick off? Do you think it, had it been, you know, before you got a silver medal at the Olympics, you could maybe justify it a little bit more? Potentially, yeah. I, I don't know because I... Obviously, it happened when it did, and it's hard to put myself back in in yeah. in those shoes. But if it would have happened earlier, I mean, I, I look back and there's there's races I feel I left on the table. I feel like there was mm. still much more I could have done within mm. the sport. But I don't. I go to the BMX track every day. I go to the track 
where my accident happened two times, twice a week with my wife. And, uh-huh. and I don't ever sit there and go, oh, you know, this sucks or I wish I was out there or I can't believe this happened to me. I just, so I think, yeah, to answer your question, I think I, I was in a, in a, I'm at a place where I'm satisfied and I think I'm satisfied because I left it all out there and, and I, and yeah, what I didn't win every race and there was still that elusive gold medal, which I would have loved to have gotten, but I, I don't feel like I could have done anything more and there was no stone left unturned. And I'm thankful for the fact that of the, the, the biggest thing I got out of it was it's a skill set and mm-hmm. a skill set of work ethic, a skill set of a competitive mindset and a process driven mindset, which now my horizons are so much broader than that. And I can, you know, take all those skills into so many other areas of life. And, and honestly, I feel probably more in control of my life now than I did as an athlete because I realize like I have this set of keys that I can go and use now. Man, it's a great mindset. I'll never forget Angus. I don't think I've told you this at the London Paralympic games for me, Sam, you competed at the London Olympics. I turned up at the village, right? And you go in the village, you get bust in. Holy sh! The BMX track was the most hectic thing I've ever seen. Oh, really? I can't. Have you seen actual Olympic level BMX? No, TV, I, yes, but it was so steep mm. and big, right? Did you have any like accidents as a as a youngster growing up? Where you ever had any like serious injuries apart from obviously the one when you had the, your major crash? Because there's always prevalent danger, we guess. Yeah, I mean, I had obviously a ton of crashes um, right the way through my career, but. Um, actually never broke a bone there you go. my whole career wow. Wow. Until, uh, until the big one. So, and I don't have any footage of my crash, but I doubt it was the worst. I had crashes that looked pretty nasty that I hopped up and walked away from yeah. totally fine. And this one, I mean, I felt it, I lived it and I know the speeds and the, the, the size of the jump that I crashed on and it, it couldn't have been from a visual standpoint. I, I know it wouldn't have looked anywhere near as bad as some of those other ones. Mm. That's the thing with brakes, isn't it? I mean, it's all about angles and manipulation and timing. Can you take us back to the day that the crash happened? Uh, My crash was basically right on pretty much four weeks after the Rio Olympics. I'd had a, well, very successful campaign up until the final at the Olympics and a couple of mistakes in the final and just ended, ended the day in fifth or sixth. And, it was a pretty disappointing blow and uh, I actually had a torn ACL at the Rio Olympics. So I tore it back in March before the Olympics. And then the plan was, you know, just keep your head down. And luckily being a cycling sport, I could keep racing with a brace on because there's no lateral movement. Oh. Um, so it really didn't affect me at all as far as racing was concerned physically. But the plan was, you know, just full steam ahead and try to win that Rio race and then get my knee fixed. And obviously Rio didn't, work out how I hoped. And after Rio, I probably should have had some time off to just mentally and physically repair and, you know, recover. And I went back to, I actually raced a race two weeks after Rio in Louisville, Kentucky, just, just trying to, you know, just, I was just like a bull at the gate, just trying to make up for that loss in Rio really Mm -hmm. and win the next race. And, um, the weekend my accident happened, I was supposed to be in Minnesota with Elise for a, a charity event and changed my flights and stuff, went home and was like, I'm just, you know, head down, I'm going to win the next race. And it was just a basic 
it wasn't even a training day. It was more or less an active recovery day on a Saturday um, out at the local track that I rode every day for the past six years and um, just doing a routine warm up and going through the little rhythm section is what we call it. It's just a bunch of little jumps in a row. And I'd always go through it on my back wheel, like manually. And that was kind of uh, my warm up. And um, this particular time just went through going a little bit faster, maybe, and um, tried to just overcorrect and went up and flipped off the back of my bike, or we call it looping out. And um, I remember being in the air and kind of like thinking I've been in that position hundreds mm-hmm. of times as a kid. Mm-hmm. I always flipped off the back of my bike and land on your back. You knock the wind out of yourself. And I remember thinking like, all right, I'm going to come down. I'm going to be winded. And um, by the time I hit the ground and came to and realized I wasn't winded. And then the next thing you do is obviously you do your full body scan. And sort of that was when I realized I couldn't feel my legs. And the reason being is because I'd obviously gone completely upside down and come down on the top of my head, basically gone half a backflip and come down and land on top of my head and crushed my cervical spine. So you're incomplete. So you have use of your arms um, and uh, a, a little bit affected, but obviously more so in your lower your lower body. Can you tell us if you can remember what's going through your head, man? When you're lying there, do you catastrophize the worst, or do you kind of talk talk yourself into it that you're going to be all right? No, I knew it was bad. I didn't really understand spinal cord injury at the time, and I had no pain, so I wasn't my immediate thought process wasn't like, oh, I've broken my neck. I didn't know why I couldn't feel my legs. I just knew I couldn't. And then when the EMT sort of started running through the checks and, and he, I could see his hand like on my chest and I could see it was right there, but it felt like it was like a foot off of my chest. And mm-hmm. basically, obviously because I was just numb from the neck down and um, the best way I describe it is like a wetsuit full of water. And actually early on, my hands did go out in those initial checks at the, at the track. And that was, I'd say that at that point when I couldn't squeeze the hand of the medic, that was when, yeah, I'd say that sort of real panic set in for me. Um, right from the get go, it was never like I dim- dismissed BMX pretty, like I'd say right from the get go, my, my immediate thought process went to like, Am I going to be able to stand up again? And am I going to get married? Am I going to, like all of those, those kinds of things? Um, because there was another rider there with me and, and he knew I was training for this other race coming up in November. And he was like, you know, you, you're trying to keep me calm on the track. Like, you know, you, you're going to be all right. You know, we're going to get ready for November. You, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Obviously positive reinforcement. And, and I remember just saying to him like, no, this is, this yeah. is not good. And so November um, wasn't what was going through your mind. It was the the more simple, basic things. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah I, it just didn't. I mean, obviously, when you paralyzed, you feel that you're paralyzed, and I just felt bigger than that. It didn't feel like it was going to be a a quick fix at that point. And and BMX quickly went out of my like the thought of riding a bike again went out of my mind. It it just seemed bigger than that. What did you know about disability pre that day? I mean, I'd been around friends that had had like in, growing up in Adelaide motocross mates. And I, like, I remember one of my friends, Ben Harris, when I was growing up, he had an, had an accident and was paralyzed. But I mean, other than like Ben's a paraplegic, that's, that's as far as it, it went. And mm. 
Um, and I feel guilty for that now. And, and I'm probably a, a little, I'm, I'm more understanding of people not understanding mm. a lot of my stuff, I would yeah, say. That's so true. I, because I didn't, you know, and I had no idea just everything, you know, from going to the bathroom to everything. Yeah, it's a, it's a complicated deal. And I, um, I, w- I wish I would have had a better knowledge other than I knew people that had had paralysis and um, even people, you know, born with disabilities. Like my mum worked in like special education when I was growing up. So I was around it a little bit, um, but, you know, that was more, um, I'd say, like defects at, at, at birth because of alcoholism or things like that. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's interesting, you had the opportunity to learn when you were a kid, but kind of didn't take up that opportunity, but looking back on, yeah. and I feel the same, you know, now that I'm in this space, I'm able-bodied, I, I, I look back and I'm like, I really wish I did take up, you know, there was a course at our school, an opportunity to go and take on a special education um, aspect of, and I was like, nah. Yeah. And not, honestly, I think two kids did it out of the opportunity of hundreds. And I was like, I I really wish I took that opportunity up. So I I understand that feeling. The biggest thing I think back on is like when I would look at someone in a wheelchair before, I used to think like the hardest thing they're probably going through is the fact that they can't walk. And that's probably the, that's the (laughs) The least. That's the least. We keep learning that. We keep learning that. Bladder function seems to be the really important one. Yeah. 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 So you're at that moment. You've got the feeling, like you said, it's like a wetsuit. You you don't know what you're feeling. You don't know what your diagnosis is. I, I'm sure you get many vacked out. When's the moment that you realize that you've got your um, spinal injury? It was a while. So they, I was eventually airlifted from the track and then they still hadn't really said anything to me about it, um, about just, they were just trying to stabilize me, basically keep me as still as possible. Um, I knew I was motionless but I mean even if I wanted to try to move some things or do I was strapped so tight to the Mm. backboard and it was very like do not move stay still um and I was I was with it I didn't have a head injury or concussion or anything um so I was um airlifted to the hospital which was about a five minute helicopter flight and then when I got there I was kind of just rushed through the hospital ward and there was no one with me at the time it was Mm. just just me because my wife um, yeah fiance Elise was in Minnesota mom and dad obviously are in Australia brother everyone so I was yeah rushed to emergency and the first thing they did was put me through an MRI scan and even at that point still hadn't told me anything and then I was brought out of the MRI scan and was basically just waiting there and that was when um, a surgeon came around and, and he didn't really introduce himself he just said close your eyes and closed my eyes and he said, what am I doing? I said, squeezing my right big toe. And he said, okay, we need to go to surgery now. And I remember saying to him like, for surgery for what? Why? And what are you doing? Where are you touching? And why? And, mm. you know, I was motionless on this stretcher, but still kind of like at that point, I'd never even been under the knife. Like I'd never had a surgery and never broken my immediate bone. thought. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. My immediate thought was like, I need to consult with, mom dad at least someone second opinion something yeah yeah. (laughs) um and he said you've broken your neck at c5 6 7 c6 is burst fracture and it's putting it's compressing your spinal cord and if we don't relieve that pressure your chances of recovery are zero and um 
the next question I said, well, what are the risks? And he said, well, when we're going in there, we're pulling those bone fragments out and relieving the pressure. If we hit any higher, you know, permanent paralysis from your neck down, it's a very sensitive area is, is possible. Oh my gosh. Um, and then I asked him, do you know what you're doing? And he said, yeah. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> and then off we went and it was, uh, so you calling yeah. Elise, you calling your parents, you, you, you don't even get I, a chance. No, I hadn't spoke to, oh, I, I spoke crap, to man. when I was in the, when I was waiting in the ambulance for the helicopter at the track, um, they held a phone to my ear and it was Elise and she was like rushing to the airport in Minneapolis to fly back there. And we had a brief chat, but still it wasn't like, Oh, this is what they've told. It wasn't, I mean, I was panicked. She was panicked. It wasn't like, a, it was just like, stay tight, stay be well and I love you and I'll, I'll see you soon. Shit, man. We're, we're, you're going to be okay. She, how old was she? Was she okay? I could tell she was trying to hold it together mm. for my sake, but I mean, I could tell her, her voice was broken. And mm. But for yeah. people that don't know as well, your partner is a world champion herself in BMX. Gold medalist? Silver medalist. Silver medalist as well. Yeah. So you guys are equal yeah. down. Very nice. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah she, so she knows and understands the risks as well. And we often think about this as well and you will now as well, Sam. Like it's not – it happens to us as well, but it happens to our partners and our family as well, doesn't it? And like they, they, feel, the, they feel as much of the effect as you do. Yeah. And that was the biggest thing the psychologist said to me when I got to rehab. He had held a meeting with my family and Elise and I, and, and he said, Sam's not the only one injured here. You know, this whole, this whole group is injured. This whole group has a broken neck right now. Mm-hmm. And I remember when he first said it, I was like, no, they don't. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I'm the one in a wheelchair. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get to that in a second. I want to go back to, you're about to go into a major operation with somebody you've never met before and literally your life is in their hands. Looking at someone you've never met and wondering probably, is there a specialist in this field that in two days' time I can fly from XYZ in the world to come and do this yeah. operation that could be better. But this doctor's that, telling you, no, we need to go right now. They're, on top yeah. of everything, I mean, can you take us through that, the medical side of things and, and, and that thought process? And that was why I asked that doctor those questions. And I think especially being Olympic athlete, like every time we had an injury before or I got sick, it was like a phone call back to cycling Australia and Adelaide and yeah. then they're like oh yeah we have a network and we have connections to this mm. person that person and, yeah we'll get you a CT yeah. scan and some ultrasound and you'll be fine yeah, yeah exactly how it works it was yeah. never like just go and see the local doctor it was like always like oh we look for the he's best a specialist person. yeah and here I was at the local Hillcrest hospital in yeah. San Diego that I'd never been to and this guy was like yeah I'm gonna pull the bone fragments out of your spinal cord oh and yeah. My immediate thought was like, I need to speak to, to mum, dad, at least Dave Hayes, who was like a, a medical person at CA. Yeah, that seems like it's the right move. a conversation <laughs> that should be slowed down. But you can't. But there is yeah. no time to wait. But there's no time, yeah. Wow. And that was, and they said like, I was so lucky that I got in and, well, that's the best, you know, the quicker you can relieve that pressure, the, the better. And yeah. I was within five hours or something. I but, can't imagine what was yeah. going on. All of these emotions, thoughts going through your head, Sam. That's that's crazy. Sam, do you get jealous of Elise still cycling? No, not at all. No. I, I think what I pulled from BMX was it was the competition that I loved, mm. just the competitive side. And I get that now with, with coaching and I still enjoy watching the sport. I enjoy 
you know, doing doing my own exercising that I can do. Yeah, and, you're bloody um, ripped, bro. Yeah. You have got swole. <laughs> like when we when we met before, I was like, yeah, and you're walking around, I'm like, look how big he is now. You would have broken your bike, I reckon. You'd be too heavy. <laughs> shoulders. Uh, but it was a process, Sam, of recovery where did you try and do as much as you could to get back to the old mm-hmm. Sam Willoughby, you know, trying to get back on the bike, try and recover some sort of normality of what your normal was? Absolutely. I mean, I I did rehab, like specialty rehab and sourced out every bit of information I could for two years and I did it six days a week and everything from, you know, trying all these kooky kind of Eastern medicine things and just anything, honestly, just to, I just wanted to feel like I'd turned over, you know, every leaf and yeah, fair. tried everything I could. And and early on, I think everyone that has an injury like this, you, you go through a pretty dark time of depression and, and I faced all of that. And um, Yeah, how long did that last? I really felt it was probably the first six to eight months. Yep. And for me, it was, I really, I felt like my only way out of it was to walk again. Like if I didn't walk, I was a failure and I was useless and I didn't want to live that life. And I didn't want to even go down that avenue of seeing what that life had to, had to offer. And for me, a turning point was I met someone over here who was a, he's a NASCAR crew chief and he's actually in a wheelchair. Um, and it was about, it was April. So my injury happened in September. So it was, yeah, it was, it was around six, seven months after my injury. Um, and I'd just been sort of, since we got back from hospital, which was New Year's Eve of um, 2016, I'd just basically locked myself in the house and was just doing therapy every day, twice a day. When I wasn't doing therapy, I'd you know, lay in the bed and visualize and try just trying everything. And I was, I was skinny. I was pretty white, white. I mean, I'm very albino as it is, but mm-hmm. I was pretty white mm-hmm. and um, just never went outside. Didn't want to be seen in public. I didn't, I was scared to be seen with Elise in public because I just felt like people would look at me like, Oh, why is he with her? And I didn't know how to answer questions when we went in public and I wasn't confident with my skill set in a wheelchair to get, into a restaurant to get into a bathroom to at that point I needed help. You know, some people were literally lifting me in the car and um, I just didn't want to go anywhere. And so I locked myself in the house and my brother and his wife were living with us kind of splitting time with my mum to help out. And um, it got to around April and there was a NASCAR race in Fontana, which is about two hours from us. And um, my brother was like, we're going to the race. And I was like, not go in that race. I don't want it. Like I'd love to, but I don't want to be seen in public. I don't want to know. And um, anyway, he basically dragged, literally threw me in the car and made us go to the race. And um, I knew some people in the NASCAR industry. So Matt organized like some tickets and the the guy that I knew, he organized all these meet and greets and which I was pretty scared about um, because, you know, we're meeting all these you know, Jimmy Johnson and all these NASCAR drivers and and here I am in a wheelchair and, and I get introduced as this is Sam, he's an Olympic BMXer and they're <laughs> and I can tell they're like, how does that work? Yeah. And when did this happen? Yeah. And and I wasn't I didn't even know how to explain that. And um I wasn't confident in myself. And anyway, we did all the meet and greets and the friend that had organized the tickets, he said at at ten o'clock you need to 
go to just do me a favor, go to the number 13 hall or there's a guy I need you to meet. His name's Booty Barker. And he said that he's in a wheelchair. And at that point, I didn't want to meet anyone in a wheelchair. And it feels low to say that now, but that's, that's just the point I was at because I didn't feel like I wanted to hear anything that they had to say because I didn't want that to be my life. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't ready for that. But anyway, out of respect, we went there to meet Booty and he comes rolling out the back of this, out the back of this trailer and wheelies down and he's, Hey Sam, how you going? Like just this most bubbly upbeat guy you've ever seen. And he's in great shape and solid looking guy. And um, pull, we go up into the back of the hauler and he's, he's climbing up and down the walls, pulling down exhausts and taking us on his laptop and showing us all the engine data. And, and here's this, he's this, you know, 40 year old guy in a wheelchair 30 years ago. It had, the same, sorry, not that 20 years prior to had the same injury as I'd had broke his neck at C6. And here he was, he's now an engineer running this multi-million dollar race team. And he's married in great shape, independent, travels the country every week. And he looked at me and uh, he said, when, when'd you get hurt? And I was like, Oh, seven months ago. He's like, you look great. What are you going to do now? And, uh, I didn't know how to answer that. <laughs> I was just kind of taken back. And my brother kind of answered it for me. And he's like, oh, you know, Sam really wants to, he wants to walk again. So, you know, he's doing everything he can, doesn't doing a lot of rehab and trying to get back on his feet. And, um, and then Booty said, cool, then what? And I didn't know how to answer that. <laughs> and then my brother looked at Booty and he kind of said like, oh, when did you like, Matt didn't really know how to ask the question, but he was like, oh, when did you, stop rehab and he's like rehab you didn't do no rehab they said to me you can dress yourself you can leave the hospital i did that in three weeks got the hell out of there and went and got my engineering degree and here i am look at that i was pretty just taken back because until that point everything when i was in rehab hospital was like oh you know you're gonna need a modality for this you're gonna you know traveling you're not gonna it's gonna be tough to travel you know you're not gonna be able to do it you're gonna have to get to the airport four hours before and all this organizing. And, you know, you basically like I'm going to roll into the back of a minivan for the rest of my life. And everyone's job is around me is just going to be to keep me alive and nothing's possible. And then he was probably able-bodied people telling you that as well. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. And, um, and then he was booty with the same injury as me. And he's telling me, you know, just do whatever you want. You know, I drive an F three fifty and, you know, if the, if the bed's a little high, just get stronger and climb on it. And like, <laughs> you can see why the first time. you can see why stories like this is so important because you needed a role model like that to see that you could live, right? And you could be whoever you 100%. want. And that's why like podcasts like this is important because people that will have an injury with their neck will listen to Sam and be like, oh, I thought my life was over. And here's a guy who had a great life, mm-hmm. Olympic silver medalist. But also had the same you know, mindset of, you know, I'm going to try, I'm doing everything I can to stand when really your life changed when you realized your life's going to be bigger by sitting. Exactly right. And And since meeting, I mean, since that day that I met Booty, I would say I'm happier than ever in my life. I love that, bro. It's awesome. And I think that's huge given that from a stereotypical standpoint, four and a half years ago, I was at the pinnacle of a dream job for many kids. I love that, mate. I love your mindset. If you don't mind me asking, and you can always tell me to shut up, how did your relationship go when you had your accident? Did you have times where you think, thought it was going to end? Did you feel like a burden? How did you get through that? 
Yeah, I felt like a massive burden early on. And actually, the first thing I said to Elise when she got to the hospital was, you're not marrying me. You're oh, not burning yeah. vegetable. Heartbreaking. Yeah. And just because I felt there was just so many unknowns, I didn't know how I was going to appreciate myself, let alone have. And, and I knew the kind of person that she is, is that she wasn't going to go anywhere. And she just, she just never wavered the whole, whole way through it. Like, mm. Never, I don't think she barely cried in front of me a couple of times. It was just always like, what's the next thing to help you? And, um, and like, I, I wanted to stand at our wedding and that was a big goal of mine, but it, it was never for her. It was, mm. she didn't, she didn't care. And she said that from, from the get go, if, if that's something that I wanted to do, but she was marrying me either way. And I'm just very fortunate. I think I'm just a, Everyone says a lot of the time, oh, you know, you're so strong the way you've dealt with it. And this, I think I'm just a product of a great network of people that were around me that picked me up and, and, and kept pushing me forward. You said you left no stone unturned when looking for, you know, any sort of uh, practical or medicinal ways to try and get back on your feet. Did you come across stories of people who had had the same injury and were walking and do you find that was detrimental to your personal recovery? Like great for them, but did you find that, you know, not idolizing those sort of stories, but kind of trying to replicate them was diminishing for your character and your person in a chair? I don't want to say that was diminishing. I think that it, um, at the time it was really good because they were, it, it, it was stories of hope and stories of, that's what I wanted to see at the time. And, yeah. Um, I think I, I think once again from sport, I'm just lucky to have the skill set that I had from a mindset standpoint in that I was able to identify like early on that every one of these deals was very different and that, you know, some people won in different ways and some, you know, and that just because that person walked, it doesn't mean that I'm going to be able to walk, but I wanted to hear their story. And, and I was, I think from sport, like just because that's how that person won doesn't necessarily mean my path's going to be the same as that, but maybe I can learn something out of that story. And probably my biggest regret is how I, I, tr- I steered away from the people in wheelchairs. And I think that because I didn't want that to be my outcome at the time, but I've learned more from people in wheelchairs than probably anyone in my whole life pre and post injury. Yes. So I'd say, I, I don't want to say that though they, they were the stories that we searched for, like the whole family searched for those stories. You know, there's a, there's a miracle story. Someone walked in, in three months and, and you, you hold on to that. You hope like, Oh, maybe they had a secret. And um, I guess at the time, that's what you needed. You needed that hope, but then you found, yeah. you know, at that NASCAR race, what you really needed. For sure. I think sometimes, yeah. yeah and, just from my personal point of view, those stories are hopeful, but they're also dangerous because people drop crazy amounts of money to try and figure right. out ways to do nothing's going to come back, right? Mm. I'm talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I'm like, go to Berlin and drink beers with that money. <laughs> and then once, it's like yep. something clicks in your head, right? From people with accidents, even people like me, like, oh, I just got to get busy living, right? And then as soon as you, that day mm. comes, you're like, oh my God, why was I doing all that? You know what I mean? And you guys have very yep. similar stories in chairs of you wouldn't want your life to be any different. You know, well, you've never been happier. Exactly, yeah. In the certain yep. circumstance that you're in now, which is amazing. Hey, Sam, does your does your Olympic sorry Olympic silver medal mean more, less, or the same to you now post accident? Probably the same, to yep. be honest. 
Yeah. I just, I honestly, I don't remember a lot of the, it's all of the journey along yeah. the way that I remember mm. the most, just the, the training camps, the, the ups and downs of, you know, relationships, the great people you met and, um, you know, the traveling the world. And those, those are the things that are at the forefront of my mind when I think back to, to sport and to BMX especially. And I, I think it means more in the respect I'm, glad I have it. And it's, uh, it's something that will, will always be a part of me, but it, it doesn't, it's not my identity. I wouldn't say. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you think you got enough support and recognition when your accident happened, especially in Australia, because you're the best in the world, right? You were, I felt like I knew about it because obviously I had an interest because you were now in a chair and I've like reached out to you and made like say good day and stuff. I feel like it wasn't, big enough news slash didn't probably get the support and recognition that you deserve, not only in BMX because it's a smaller scale sport for sure, but when it happened, am I reading too far into that or do you feel a bit of that too? I actually thought I got a lot of support. Okay, I, I actually thought I, and that may have been, I mean, I was in hospital with people that just, I was, I was one of the fortunate ones in that respect, especially <laughs> being here in America with their medical system and yeah. I was in hospital with, with kids my age that had had the same injury that the insurance wouldn't even buy them a shower chair. Like oh, they, they just had to figure it out. Yeah. So I'm very fortunate. I, I feel very fortunate that I was able to get everything I needed and, um, and I felt a great amount of support. Um, the positive side of it is I think, I think I have a responsibility now and, and it's healthy for me as well to try to be, you know, be out in public and be, I think that was what people were scared of at first, a little bit in the respect that, you know, there were some sanctions and some people in BMX that didn't, that were scared to have me back at the track because mm. it was like, you were basically saying, here's one of the best to ever do it. And this happened to him. Mm. Yeah, this could be you. Definitely away. sign your kid up. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, hey, can we, they're like, hey, Sam, do you mind just going to hide behind that yeah. over there so no one can see you? <laughs> Sam, we're going to get a photo of you from your chest up holding your silver medal. Uh, don't, need, don't need anything below the chest. No, just need, that's, that's fine. Um, so I felt it was, it was my responsibility to show that I'm okay and, and I'm happy and, and this sport didn't do this to me. And, um, you know, it was an accident and that I was not bitter at the sport and, um, and that, that there's there's still so much great to come out of our sport and it, it is a very safe sport in many many ways and and I'm uh, and that's what I think was so surprising about my injury was I think my profile in the sport and then also the fact that it it is was really like one of the first in our sport especially at that level there's um if you go back to Sam Willoughby and I, obviously I'm just guessing and, and please fill in the blanks but um, in let's say March 2016 so able-bodied BMX champion and yep. we all want to be remembered for something and leave a legacy what do you think you would have at that point liked to be remembered for versus the Sam that's sitting here today with us I think at that point I probably wanted to be remembered as the best BMXer ever right <laughs> <laughs> and that was kind of where I was trying to get to. And then now, I don't know, I guess I'm still trying to write that story, but I think I just want to be remembered as a, as a genuine, hardworking 
person and yeah, ultimately a good husband and and one day hopefully a great father. Yeah. If you're in the It's funny how that changes though, isn't it? Is, it is, yeah. If you're on the way to the track, if you can go back in time that and you're on the way to Chula, was that the name of the track? Yeah, Chula Vista. Yeah. Do you turn left and not go there that day or do you go? Uh, if I knew the outcome? Or? Yeah, so do you regret what happened? Like would you, if you can turn back time and change it, mm-hmm. what would you do? No, I don't regret. No, I don't. No, I don't regret going to the track that day. I think early on those thoughts went through my head a couple of times, mm-hmm. but it just, I was doing what made me great at my sport for so many years. And that was that I was just hundred percent bullet the gate all in, give it my all and try to be better than I was yesterday every day. And um, yeah, ultimately I may have overdone it and maybe pushed too hard at some point, but if I didn't have that mentality, I would not have been world champion at 20 years of age. Exactly. Mm. Yep. There's something that I was thinking about the other day, and this is something about talking about that before for you, Sam, is Neil Danaher was an amazing Essendon football player, coach, yep. uh, extraordinary AFL legend that would have gone down in the history books. But Neil Danaher is going to be remembered for his philanthropy in the MND world. His purpose. His purpose. His real purpose. Yep. His, I didn't know what MND was, motor neuron disease, before Neil Danaher existed, before the big freeze, before the beanies. And that's what he's going to be remembered for. And I reckon if you ask him between the two parallels of living two huge lives in one, I think you, it's a pretty easy, easiest answer for his family and for him, for that legacy. And I love that your story hasn't been told yet and you're still writing. And I think that's really great. And I think it's going to be a great legacy. Good on you, brother. Hey. I'm on your Instagram right now. Two things. One, long hair, better than short hair. Yeah, I really like the you long hair look. hot. Right? I don't like it. Two, <laughs> you are benching some serious big boy weights, right? Like, I'm like 125 keg plus bench. That That's massive. PBs. Would you ever do Paralympics? Any vibe? Are you good at sport? Have you tried it. sport? I've, um, I mean, I have a hand cycle that I, I ride a bit for fitness and then I, I I'm a meathead, so I love lifting weights. Yeah. And I... I mean, right now I'm pretty head full on into the coaching with with my wife and um, Anthony Dean and Lauren Reynolds, who hopefully will go for Australian BMX. But I don't know; it's in the back of my mind. I wouldn't say it's at the forefront at the moment. I did look at the bench press for the Paralympics, and you, some Chinese bloke won and bench like 230 kilos. Hang so. on, hang on. <laughs> if you, I need everybody right now, right after the, this episode ends, to go on YouTube, Google Paralympic. Bench press world record it was a guy from Iran. He weighed like yeah. 160 kegs himself. He benches nearly 400 kegs. Paralympics. Yep. <laughs> and and it like I think he's, I think it was like yeah 340 he benched. Jeez. You're doing one. Yeah. Th- that's 200 kilos more. It's insane. It, and yeah. It's incredible. They have people of like short stature mm. bench like 125. Yeah, because they've oh, got they got short legs. Like, yeah. yeah, like yeah, their body weight for the weights they're lifting. It's better than the. Able body people. Mm, yeah, hundred percent, man. <laughs> it's crazy. Oh, yeah, we they're, they're get... top heavy. Yeah. <laughs> so, would you? Is there a sport in mind you would do? I mean, I like the weightlifting side yeah. of it, but I don't think that there probably isn't. It's tough. I mean, my hands are still not great. Yeah. Like, so I can't bench the barbell that well. Bro, you're doing one twenty-five. I, I bench like seventy. <laughs> so you're doing right, right? <laughs> and my triceps have taken a bit to come back, but um. Yeah. Maybe some, hey, I'm always looking for it's doubles partners. It's not going to be Tokyo. It's not going to be Tokyo, but another four years to think about it, you know? I'm always, look, I'm always looking for yeah. doubles partners, Sammy, mate. Oh, Come back. Yeah. <laughs> don't tell Heath, my doubles Heath partner, listens. but we'll drop him, brother. I'd, I'd love to get out there and try it one day with you. But mate, I'll happily kick your ass. 
Uh, Sam, we do a bowl of uncomfortable. This is where people send us questions um, aimed at being an uncomfortable question, but usually with a comfortable answer. This one is actually a really great question. And shout outs to Reese who sent this one through. He knew you were going to be on the podcast. How do you feel when you watch exhibitions like Nitro Circus? Uh, I think he's referencing a uh, motocross rider who had a fall and became a paraplegic, I believe. Uh, and yep. obviously these demonstrations, do you watch stuff, stunts like that and kind of irk at the possibility knowing that the injuries can exist with your own personal experience? You know what I cringe more at when I see like my little nephew on the trampoline? Yeah. <laughs> it's true though. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it can yeah. happen. It can happen. Like, or diving into like, the shallows in the beach. Yeah, he's doing somersaults and stuff. And yeah, that I cringe. I'm I'm like panicking all the time with that stuff. <laughs> um, but the Nitro Circus motocross and all that. Um, I mean, if I see a crash now, then and it and it's somewhere in that direction of you know someone lands on their head or you see someone motionless and think yeah, I mean the worst goes through your head and you kind of have an understanding of it now. Yeah. And, but in general, I mean, I'm around that world quite a bit. And so, no, I, I don't cringe all the time. No. Yeah. Do people for the track pity you sometimes still, or are you, have they accepted it as well? Yeah. And the heart, <laughs> I mean, I get, most people have accepted it. I, most people, but I mean, I still have adults that come up to me that, they're like, how's the, how's the recovery coming? Like, when do you think you'll be back on the bike? Oh and my God. <laughs> like, and like, like I had one guy last year, he's at a race and he's like, how's the recovery coming? When do you think you'll be back on the bike? And I'm like, Oh, I'm doing great. You know, I'm, I'm really happy and things are going really well. And um, I, don't, I don't think I'll, I don't think I'll ride again, but I'll be around still mm. love being here and stuff. And he's like, really? Oh, it's that bad, is it? Oh, oh like, my God. Where's the oh social God. understanding? Oh what God. world are you living in? Wow. But the hardest one is like, I have a, I've had it a few times and it, it's, it's really cute, but it, it breaks my heart when little kids come up to me at the track. And I've had a couple of little kids come up to me and say, I wish I could give you my legs so I could watch oh. you race again. Oh. <laughs> That's cute. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Sam, I'm going to be up front, mate. I don't think there's many silver medalists, Olympic silver medalists, who could have an accident like you've had and have such a positive mindset towards their life, mate. I've got to say, like, it is impressive. You're an impressive guy. You really are. And we really appreciate you coming on here and, and telling your story. I think it will help a lot of people. Also, are you earning just heaps of cash doing motivational speaking? Because <laughs> I don't know why. Like, you would be ripping it up in America. I hope you are. Do the are circuit. I haven't, I haven't done any in America. I did a couple in Australia, though, and I, I did enjoy it. I was pretty nervous to do it, but I really enjoyed it for myself as well to – tell my story and I was nervous to do it, but I guess the good thing about it is you're just telling your story and not trying to sell anything and exactly. yeah. people can take something from it and apply it to their own life. Then that's the main thing. And um, I think you can help a lot of people, you. mate. I really mean that. I think well, you can help a lot of people. Guys doing like it. you as well. Thank you. Yeah. Bro. No, thanks to guys like yourself and Booty who I, who I met, who've, who have helped, helped me. And um, there's a, I think the work that you're doing, there's a lot that we can do to continue to, to educate people and um, and help move this this world in a in a better direction and and support everyone equally. Uh, you're a star. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on and being so honest with us, mate. We really appreciate it. No, thanks for thanks for having me, and um, 
hopefully we'll be in Melbourne soon. We miss it. It's one of my favorite cities in the world. Beers on us, man. And if people want to get in touch with you, what do they, what do, they do? How do they, how do, they do that? Um, yeah, just message me on, I'm not great on social media, but I, I do read the messages on Instagram and uh, I love when I, I'm an open book, ask me any questions and especially those that are in similar situations or even just going through it through a tough time, you know, it's um, struggle, struggle. And if I can lend a, some experience or help or even just be a shoulder to lean on and chat to, I'm, I'll, I'll do my best. So yeah, just on social media. And then I am doing a little bit of public speaking. So I'm um, with TLA. So reach out to, yeah, to TLA and um, we'll have the link yeah, in the description. Love. Beautiful. For sure. Yeah. I will, you are writing your book when you finally put the pen down. We'll be buying and reading, mate. Thank you so much for sharing your story, Sam Willoughby, Matt. Thanks for having me, guys. What an upbeat dude. What a great guy. I remember his accident happening and, you know, I just thought he would be tough to come back from. Like being an Olympian medalist and then now having a disability. But the way that he holds himself, the way that his partner, mm. so they support each other, you know, she's still competing. It's pretty cool. Yeah, an amazing mindset is what I got out of that, a guy who can absolutely flick it. And what an inspiration, the, the NASCAR guy. I know. How good's that that's story? Sick. That's such a good story. What next? So what a great cool. question. You want to stand? Okay. And then what? I love that so, so, so much. So good. And you need those people in your life. Uh, a big thank you to Sam. And a huge welcome to our next guest on Listenable. My mum had a heart attack when I was in grade six and I had to drive her car to the doctors. At the age of Yeah, so I sat 13, on a, I sat on her knee and did the gears and steered to the doctors when I was in grade six. Oh my six. god, because you can't use the pedal. Yeah. So we had my brother in the back seat as well. Um, so yeah, we got to the doctors and she got rushed out the back and we were just sitting there and Next thing you know, an ambulance rocks up and we just had to wait. And uh, dad came and picked us up. And next thing we know, mum's had a heart attack. And Heath, that's one of the craziest stories I've ever heard in my entire life. You had to yeah. drive your mum's car. The first time you've ever been behind a wheel? Yeah, I was legit like, well, what would I have been, 13, 14? It's crazy. And she's operating because obviously she's having a heart attack and she's yeah, operating so she, the accelerating the brakes. Yeah, and um, oh I was my. steering and doing the gears. And your brother's in the back. Brother was in the back. And then, yeah, she was in hospital and, yeah, it's pretty much mum's life changed after that. Now, that person is a very close friend of yours. I've heard of that guy. And the episode will be released at a very topical time. Well, you know, unless you're listening to this in two years and it's not. Yeah, I mean, it could be. It could be for (laughs) another time. Who knows? (laughs) Uh, We'll talk to that person next week. Until then, make sure you're following us on Instagram. It's at listenablepodcast. And make sure you send us an email if you've got someone you think we should be talking to. Listenable podcast at Outlook.com. Listenable was presented by Dylan Alcott and Angus O'Loughlin and produced in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Audio production by Darcy Thompson and the music was written and performed by Eliza Hull. Listenable.